Welcome to the ARPA Animal Shelter of the Week podcast, where we introduce you to incredible organizations around the country that are focused on helping animals. We're proud to be sponsored by Dubert.com. Dubert is a free website designed to connect volunteers with rescues and shelters, and the only site that automates rescue relay transport. Let's meet this week's featured animal shelter. The Baltimore Animal Rescue and Care Shelter is the largest open admission shelter in Maryland. Even with more than 30 animals surrendered to barks every day, they never turn an animal away in need. They believe that animal welfare isn't just a shelter issue, but a community issue, which means that they're not just committed to the animals in their community, but the citizens of Baltimore City as well. Hey, Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to have you. And you are from Barks, which is the Baltimore Animal Rescue and Care Shelter. Uh, And I'm excited to learn a little bit more about what you guys do. Why don't you start us off with uh, sharing your history? Okay. Um, So, yeah, we're Barks. We're in Baltimore City, Maryland. And, um, you know, our our history is a little bit interesting. So in 2004, uh, there was a lot of public pressure to change how the city shelter was operating. And the reason for that is um, the shelter takes in around 12,000 animals. It it was being operated by the city of Baltimore. um, And unfortunately, there just wasn't a lot of funding for the shelter. So there were only 10 employees handling 12,000 animals a year. Um, And the conditions of the facility were um, not very good. So the public pressure was to really turn the shelter around. The euthanasia rate at that time was 98%. So after a lot of those issues came to light, the city agreed to split the shelter into two entities, um, one being the, um, the animal control entity, which would remain under the city. They would handle all the enforcement. And then the other would be um, allowing the shelter operations to be run by a nonprofit organization. And so initially, um, I just happened to uh, start getting involved um, because I heard about the shelter. I wanted to understand more of what was going on and see what I could do to help. It was just an interest of mine. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that there was this public pressure or what was really going on down there. It was just, that was a coincidence. Um, So I went down, I I attended an advisory board meeting that animal control had, and that's where I learned that that this potential split was going to happen. And from there, um, uh, they got to know me a little bit and asked me to help turn it into the nonprofit that that they were intending to do. And so I did. Um, I started the nonprofit work. We uh, took us about two years to really do the transition. So from 2005 to 2007 was probably some of the hardest time in my life. Um, being that the shelter was in such poor condition and very, very minimal staff, um, no volunteer program, um, an adoption program where out of 12,000 animals, they only adopted out 90. Um, it was a really, really tough situation. Um, so I worked really closely with the city. I worked um, a little bit with the the public group that had formed and really started to look at how how we can change it around, how could we start putting policies and procedures in place and then really start to grow those programs. So those two years were very interesting. And then um, in 2007, we hired all new employees and the nonprofit uh, really took off from there. And every year since we've been growing as an organization and saving lives. Yeah, that's a really cool history. Uh, I, I can't even imagine 
12,000 animals and and 98% right being euthanized and those are staggering numbers. It is very staggering and heartbreaking and that that is why the public outcry um I'm not even sure that they realized how many were being euthanized at that time but they knew it wasn't good. They knew the the adoption rates were low and that there weren't any programs and again those conditions um just really brought to light that there was a a real issue happening um at the shelter. Yeah, you know, that's a huge challenge. So when you look at numbers like that, that can be a daunting task. So I kind of I kind of love that everybody knew there was a problem and they didn't really know how to fix it, but they knew it couldn't get worse, right? So right. they just had to jump in and do something. So that that for me that says a lot about the community, right? About Baltimore and and so I definitely that's that's huge, right? I, I don't think I have any other words besides commendable, right? I mean, nothing happens overnight. Um, right. So I think that's huge. And, and the other takeaway for me in listening to you with that is you fell into animal rescue <laughs> like many people do, right? It's right. Just kind of like it just it just happens. And so yeah. I love that that happened to you. And, and now you're in this in this larger program that seems to be thriving. Yeah. And again, with the with the support of, of the of the community. So before we get too far from that, tell me where you guys are at now with your numbers. Yeah, so um, so we started at that 2% um, back in 2005, and every year, um, again, gaining more and more support, um, funding support so that we could add staff and create programs, um, gaining more volunteers, gaining more awareness of what we were trying to do. Because um, even at first, even though I came in there and, and we started doing these things, people were still like, you're killing all these animals. And it was like, we're trying not to, that we need you. We need you to help. Um, I don't want to be here doing this. Like, I want to be here and save lives. That's why I came. And so we kept really getting the public to try to understand that, that we're here to turn the situation around, but it's not something that we can do by ourselves. And so it was really challenging. And, and, you know, honestly, a lot of tears, a lot of tears, especially in the beginning, and really a lot of getting people to to see that this is not the shelter it was before. So we went from that 2% to really trying to, to get that understanding, to get that support. And in 2018, um, we finally hit 90% live release rate. So every year when we reach that next um, you know, 10%, then 20, then 30, then 40, we just kept going up, up, up. And when we reached 90, we were all celebrating. Every year was a celebration, but um, to be at this point is incredible. And, you know, it's not an end point. It's certainly not because um, what everybody realizes is that tomorrow we're going to get in another 35 to 100 animals. And every single day is a challenge that we have that we're faced um, with those numbers. Um, not, e- not always easy animals to place, you know, some with major medical care, some with behavior issues, um, it, lots and lots of challenges every single day. So that 90 um, it's it's difficult. It's ongoing, and um, we hope to keep raising that number as well. Um, but we never want to go backwards. That's for sure. So we always need that momentum and that support from the community. Yeah, that's huge. So in eleven years, you guys went from two percent to ninety percent. I mean, I'm kind of speechless. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to dive into this a little bit more. Uh, I don't know that we have a, enough time to really talk about all of this, but. Can you give us a little bit of an idea or a taste of what that looks like, what that growth looks like? So from year to year, right, and every 10% you're celebrating, right, and you're encouraging the community and and you're kind of educating as you go along. 
through that progress, what were some of those heartaches, right? What were some of the challenges? It sounds like help, you know, asking for help with the community, getting the support you need. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about what those steps were? Kind of what I'm getting at is, is I want other people out there to know that you can do this, right? Starting at 2% is heartbreaking. And like you said, there's a lot of, you know, tears shed. There is hope, right? And and it's not yeah. a quick process. And so I just want to kind of help them understand or see what that process looks like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So in the beginning, um, you know, it seems insurmountable. And I, and I honestly, there were times where I was like, what did I do? Because I had a great job before I loved where I worked. And, um, you know, but I, I like problem solving too. And for me, I'm that person that when something is just wrong and, and you know it can be better, I dive head in and I'm all in. And luckily, um, you know, I kept finding more and more people that were like that. So initially, um, you know, there wasn't funding to hire staff. So I had the 10 union employees that I inherited it in the beginning um, that were doing what they could do uh, with the with the volume of what we were dealing with. And it really started off by saying, okay, this this needs to be a bigger party here. <laughs> we need more people. Um, and so we really started by growing the volunteer program because we needed people to help us in the shelter um, with all the activities going on day to day on that end, even with just cleaning and handling the animals, um, basic, basic things, doing laundry. There just wasn't enough people even to do those things. So we needed that volunteer support within the shelter. And then I also needed volunteers to help um, with other aspects. So I brought on some volunteers to help with uh, connecting with the rescue partners in our community to see who would be willing to come and help. And it was interesting because at first they're like, well, the city shelter won't let us take animals. And we're like, no, 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 we're changing. We are taking over. We need you to come help. How many can you take? Come today. Um, so it was really just kind of needing, I needed more assistance with opening those doors and talking to people and getting them to realize the change was happening. And then the third um, area was, um, really getting out in the community too. So we started setting up, you know, a little table with some information, um, you know, just typed up on a regular word, basic document of like who we were, what we're trying to do, how they could help. Um, And then really changing the adoption program because the way the adoption program worked at the time was, you know, it was a several month process. It was just very disorganized. So by uh, gaining some volunteers to help in that area and help turn that around and have adoption classes every day and show the animals and help just really um, be more efficient in the process, we could move animals out faster and faster. And we started to get to a point where we're doing same day adoption. So in the beginning, it was really like taking programs now that are so common practice and, and trying to at least take steps in each one of those areas because those things didn't exist before. And then from there, as we were getting more in the community and more people started to learn what we were trying to do, I mean, there were still the naysayers. It's not going to happen. It's, you know, it's too difficult. But there were a lot of people who were like, okay, I want to be part of this. And more and more people joined. And so, you know, it's not an overnight thing. It's something that does take a while to show that this is not, this, this, 
this progress is not going to stop. You know, we're, we have a momentum here and we just need you to, to jump in and be part of it. Volunteers would come in and say, what can I do today? And at that point we were saying, what do you want to do? Cause this, we have all this stuff that needs to be done. Take your pick. We'll show you how to do it and throw you in. And it literally was, we threw anybody in who wanted to help in any area um, because the need was so great. There weren't a lot of rules and structure and things like that because we needed the help and we were so desperate for it that um, that we took it. And we had some wonderful, wonderful people still who volunteer today. We have a lot of volunteers who have been with us 10 or more years um, and they've been part of that change. So as we continue to grow, we started to just think um, our programs changed. They kept growing. Um, again, they start off very basic and, and we were able to expand them over time as we learned more and saw like, what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, everybody's like, you know, a lot of people have a hard time with change, including me, sometimes I am, but in this world, in this environment, we had to change and adjust to, to make it work, to find what would save more lives. And you're gonna do whatever you need to do to make that happen. And, you know, not at risk, not at safe, the safety of anyone, nothing like that. More just like, how do we think differently? Are procedures and policies holding you back? Is there another way to do this that is still safe and, and is best for the animal and best for the people and that makes sense? And we really just had to, to keep looking at that mindset and, and altering how we're doing things. You know, everybody's like, they need black or white. And I always said, animal welfare is gray. You have to be able to adjust because you never know what you're gonna get. Well, we would get days where we get over 100 animals in, and then we get days where we get 30. And so when those animals come in, that same number has to go out. So you have to be very creative in how can you do that in order to save lives because you don't want that out to be euthanasia. You want that out to be placement in a home, placement in um, a business or at a barn or um, returning them to the field for, for outdoor cats and just really looking at more progressive programs um, you know, and, 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 and just trying new things to, to save lives and, and to make those best decisions. And the more we got support from volunteers and, and, and even the staff buy-in of, okay, this does work, this is working, then we continue to grow and we continue to um, expand our life-saving efforts. I, I definitely agree with that. One of the things that you mentioned, which was kind of staggering to me, was that you guys receive three, 30, excuse me, 30 to 100 animals a day. That's, that's a pretty large number to me. Where do those animals come from? Um, are they community surrenders? Are they, to help me understand where those, where you're getting those animals from? Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if you take that, the 11 to 12,000 that we get every day, that averages out to about 30, 30 to 35 animals a day that come in. That's on average. So there will, you know, it fluctuates. Sometimes it's way higher. Sometimes it's just a little bit lower. I can't say we've, we've never had a day where we didn't have any animals or even under 10 come in. So, um, you know, we're, we're taking in animals from, um, we are a partner of Animal Control for Baltimore City. Uh, we share a building with them. Um, they go out and they uh, they have to get animals from different scenes. So sometimes it's um, animals left ab abandoned in apartment complexes and, and vacant buildings. Um, sometimes it's a police situation where, you know, if something's happening with that family and the people are taken away and animals can't be left behind, so animal control pick those up. And sometimes it's an enforcement issue um, where there's some violation of the law that animal control has to pick them up. 
And then on the other hand, we'll also get animals directly from the public. And, you know, majority of those are um, either stray animals that somebody found and are bringing in or um, owner surrender. And those owner surrenders can be for all kinds of reasons, um, from people having to move, being forced to move. Um, We are a very transient city, a lot of renters. um, So a lot of times there's housing issues. Um, We also, uh, people will have animals that have medical issues uh, that they cannot handle and or can't afford to to take care of the animal any longer. So there's a, a whole host of reasons, you know, and at first, um, you know, many years ago, everyone was very judgmental on anybody surrendering a pet because folks like us, you know, they're in our bed all the time. We would do whatever we need to do to keep them. But the more and more we work with the people and talk to the people and get to the the um, reason for their surrenders, you start to realize, you know, they, they do have a deep love for that animal, too. But their circumstances um, prevent them from either being able to help their animal. And so they come to you for that or being able to keep their animal and uh, they come to you for that. So um, we are really now focusing more on how can we support people and, and helping pets to stay with their families because there's a great need for that. Yeah, that's definitely important, right? And I love that that's yeah. a that's a focus for you guys in in providing resource and education and and different programs for your community. Um so you did mention community cats and working cats. So I want to spend a few minutes on what those programs look like for you and how they're helping your community. Yeah, so um several years ago, we were very fortunate to be chosen by um Best Friends Animal Sanctuary for um, them to bring a new program to us. Now, <clears throat> in 2007, on our own, we, we were able to change the laws in Baltimore City to um, legalize feeding outdoor cats and doing um, trap, neuter, and return programs where you go out, there's already cats that are living out there, you trap them, you vaccinate them, you spay and neuter them, and you return them um, to where they're living. And where they're living, there are always people feeding them, they have a food source, they're well cared for. So this program now um, five years ago that that best friends brought to us um, they, they it supported staffing it supported a transport vehicle and um, it supported spay neuter cost and what it did is really help us to take programs that existed on small scale and do it at a much higher volume so we were doing about 3500 um, spay and neuters of outdoor cats a year And by doing that and targeting certain areas where we were taking in the most cats, um, it really helped turn our numbers around. It really helped um, prevent animals from coming into the shelter. So our community cat program um, is a huge focus of ours because it's saving lives and we have the the data to, to back that. Um, of course, you know, you don't want to put more animals out there, but we're uh, a lot of people are like, why are you putting them back on the street? Well, there's no other alternative for those animals. They thrive there. They're already living there. They already have people who care for them and are taking care of them. Um, so they're going back to where they're they're doing well instead of being in a shelter where there's a high chance of euthanasia. Um, the other program that we started doing a couple years ago is um, alternative placement. So we have Um, lots of other ways that we try to place cats that otherwise wouldn't do good in a home environment. Um, They've either proven that (laughs) that in their past um, uh, when they were living in a home that just wasn't for them um, and and, or that come to our shelter and we don't know their history and we can just tell that they wouldn't be 
um, the right candidates for a typical adoption. They're not going to be the cat that will sit on your lap and hang out in your house and, and behave well as, as um, you know, a part of your, your family household. So we had to come up with, what do we do with these guys? You know, they're great cats too. They have a long life to live. So we um, reached out to businesses and asked them if they would want a cat. A lot of times, you know, uh, well, not a lot, all the time, <laughs> you see um, businesses that have a lot of mice. Um, and so we call it the working cat program where you take a cat and they'll help keep your m mice away. And we've had some really successful um We've had a lot of success with, with those kind of programs and a lot of businesses taking cats and then posting and, and uh, marketing about how well the cats are helping um, in their businesses. Um, and a lot of times those cats after a while start to come around a little bit more, their behavior changes, they become even you know more handleable. Um, and so that's really exciting. We also have a barn cat program. Those folks that have um, horses or uh, you know other barns, they see a lot of mice, and so uh, we adopt out cats to um, to to folks that have barns. And um, you know the the cat loves living in in a barn and going outside and having that that freedom. And again, they help keep the mice away. So we really look at how how else can we do this? How else can we save lives? How what's best for the animal? And then how can we help people in our community too? And so those programs are are really working. Yeah, very interesting. So I've heard of like barn cat programs before, um, which is what I assumed the working cats was, right? So I was really intrigued <laughs> in listening to you because I, for me, that does a couple of things. Yes, it helps, right, the cats. And yes, it helps the community, but it also helps the businesses. And that's a different, <laughs> that's a different one I hadn't heard of before. So yeah. tell us how those partnerships work? How Do you reach out to them? Do they reach out to you? How did you start a program like that to reach out to local businesses? Yeah, no, that's good. We um, we started cold calling and um, and marketing at the same time. And um, I, I, I can't I'll be honest, I can't remember if they got to us first or we got to them first. Sure. But we connected, <laughs> you know, we connected. And and from there, we were able to share a couple success stories and then more businesses wanted to get involved. So it's just something where, you know, you just had to give it a shot and see who who would um, who would jump at it. Um, and it's interesting, you know, people are like, oh, I can't have a cat. I can't do that. I can't do that. But then, <clears throat> you know, they think about, well, we do have a mouse problem and wouldn't it be better to have a cat here? Um, and so when they take that leap, they've seen successes and then they've shared their story. And it's that's really helped us to be able to say, well, look at what this business said or look what they they've done and and, and why for them um, it worked and maybe it can work for you. So um, and others just come forward and say, we want one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, no hesitation at all. We want one. So, um, yeah, so we did call around um, a lot of places and, and said, hey, you know, this is a program we have. It's successful. Would, are you interested? Yeah. And does it cost them anything to do that? I mean, no. tell so give me a little bit more of the details on that, right? If anybody else out there is interested. Yeah. So every one of uh, the cats are spayed and neutered. They're vaccinated. They have preventatives, flea preventative, dewormer, all of that. Um, when somebody is willing to do it, the adoption is free because these are harder to place animals. Um, it, you know, we want to move them out and we want everything to be successful. So this is a free program. Um, and then we actually bring the cat to you and we bring a crate and all the supplies that it needs 
um, because we start off uh, whenever you're rehoming an animal, especially an animal that's going to have some free roam like that, possibly indoor, outdoor. Um, we start them off in a crate and they get comfortable in their new environment and the surroundings, you know, everything that they can see. And then eventually um, they open up that crate and they let them in and out and they always know this is where my food is. You know, this is where I could go to the bathroom if it's indoor only. And then eventually the crate's removed. So we work with the person or the company through that transition um, and, and then um, and then we're out of the scene. So for us, that entire process is free. The adoption is free and all of that. Of course, there's ongoing care of the cat is then on the business or the person uh, that's adopting it. Um, they sign a contract like all of our other adoptions. They're taking um, they're taking ownership of the animal and providing its care and doing all the the future upkeep, the continuing on vaccinations, feeding, any medical care, just like any other adopter would. It's just not quite your conventional adoption process. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Um, and all of those things, you know, are pretty expensive to get up and off the ground. And so I love that you guys are making that investment. Uh, in not only the the animal but the community as well. So those are three; those are two really great programs. And I know you have another one that's fairly new to you guys that I want to talk about for a minute, and that's the training and behavior uh, aspect of what you guys do. Do you want to spend a few minutes on that? Yeah. So, um, so training enrichment is near and dear to my heart. That's what I was in before um, coming to the shelter, and so it's been a long time coming to be able to have real staff to support this. So, from the beginning, of course, we did as much enrichment as we could, as far as having things inside the animals' cages for them to interact with. Um, you know, walking, walking the dogs, getting the the cats out, petting and socializing, all of the basic uh, things you think of when you think of enrichment. Their housing and their their direct care things like that. Um, but a, a couple of years ago, we were able to, well, actually, I should say this, many years ago, probably um, between, probably around eight, we started doing play groups where we built, um, we got a, a great donation. We were able to build a, a, a fenced in area in, on our property. And we started doing play groups where we would take the dogs outside and have them interact with each other. You know, we have a lot of dogs that have high energy. Um, they need to get out of their cage. They need to socialize. So doing playgroups allowed that to happen. It also showed us more about their personality, who they are. That helped us with placement for adoption. Um, it helped us with our rescue partners to be able to say, okay, we know this dog gets along well with all dogs, This dog, or seems to, you know, from what we see here, um, or does not like other dogs, or is shy, or just needs some time to come out of their shell. So we can learn a lot about those animals by doing that. Um, and then we also um, were able to finally, uh, a couple years ago, hire some staff now. So we have three trainers um, on staff. And what they do is we have one program called Barks University, and that's anyone who adopts an animal, a dog from us, um, can come back and um, have free training. So if there's behavior issues or minor issues or basic training or whatever, they can um, come back and work with our staff for free. And the goal here is to obviously make that connection work and keep that pet with the family and show them that it is possible. So if you have a dog that's jumping up a lot and you just don't know how to handle that and they're biting the leash and you're trying to walk and you're, you know, you're trying to control that, we'll teach you how to, how to do that. We'll help train your dog with you there um, and, and set up classes. So that's, that has been very successful in, in helping um, adopters and making that a successful match. Um, and we also do pack walks where 
We um, we have volunteers who come. They take out a bunch of animals, a uh, bunch of dogs together, and they just go walking um, in a big pack. <laughs> That's why we call them back walks um, down some trails. And all the dogs, you know, at first are like, "Hey, buddy, hey, buddy," and they all want to interact. And then they start to focus and they start to walk <laughs> with the vol- they start to walk with the volunteer, pay attention to the volunteer. They start to like see that other dogs around them, but they calm down, they get their exercise, they learn proper manners. Um, so it's it's a good training tool, but it's a good exercise. And it's really nice for the dogs to get out of their kennels as much as they possibly can every day. So with that being said, we have a, a newer program that we're um, kicking off, which is, um, it's called uh, Barks Around Baltimore. And so this is where um, our volunteers can come and they can pick a dog and they can go out anywhere in the community. They put a little bandana saying, adopt me. They have a backpack on that says, ask me about adopting. And what this does is not only does it get the animal out and gives them new stimulus, and, um, and the, but the volunteer can, and it gives them exercise, the volunteer can really um, get them out in the community and people can see how they really would behave because what we do know is animals in a cage don't behave the same way necessarily as they would at home. Um, so we want to get them more into natural environment or outside a little bit more to where they can be themselves and, and really shine and show people who they are. Those are three really great programs. So I think what I like about the Barks University is that it's a free service to the adopters, which Honestly, I'm not sure that I've I've heard of before. And so I can imagine that it took you a while to get that off the ground, right? Since you had to employ trainers to offer that service. So I think that's really, really cool. Um, from the start of that program to where you are at now, how much success have you have you seen with that? There's a lot of adopters who take us up on that. You know, people, as much as the animals need to be trained, people need to be trained too. And so, um, you know, a lot of folks think like animals are just going to listen. And, or if I tell them this and we really help them to understand how to best communicate to their animal. And so um, it's a very successful program. We've, you know, we've helped some animals stay with their homes. We've just helped make it a much happier uh, relationship. (laughs) And, um, you know, because if you have a dog jumping on you all the time, you just cannot figure out how to to get that to stop. It's frustrating. It can be really challenging. So, you know, we, we help them to really see like, you know, maybe it's just the animal needs more exercise. Maybe it's how you're handling maybe. And so we just kind of go through all that. Um, so we've been very successful in doing that. Um, and sometimes, honestly, we find that it's just not a good match. And then we will take the animal back in and help find a better match for them. So we're very open-minded um, about making the right placements and really helping people and the animals because you want it to be a good match for everybody. Yeah, I think that's really important. And so do you offer that service for the life of the animal? Is that always available to them as long as they adapt through you? Yes, so there's no time limit on that for them. There's no time limit, no. Yeah, no. That's, that's pretty awesome. And then the other one you mentioned was the pack walks, right? And so this is driven towards um, volunteers, you said, right? And they can basically yes. come in and just take a dog or two and, and hit the trails and kind of roam about. And, and that's a day thing? Is that a couple hours thing? Are there? Tell me a little bit more about how someone can get involved in that program. Yeah, so um, we so our vol- volunteer program, um, we have volunteers who sign up specifically for dog handling, and so there's a communication group that um, that the that there are certain volunteers who lead the pack walk. So you work kind of your way up in the levels of handling 
um, at the shelter. We are a little more structured than what I mentioned back back in the day. Um, so we do have levels of handling. And so we have a few leaders who lead these pack walks and say, hey, I'm going to do a pack walk on Saturday. Let me know if you want to come. And then they gather all the people and they set, you know, they set up a time and then they go out and, and do it. So, um, you know, we also have smaller groups of volunteers who come in and they get dogs and they go out and walk together on a smaller scale. But then we coordinate these larger pack walks and um, and they just, you know, they leash them up right at the shelter and we have, um, you know, they just go up and down the streets around us and, and some wooded area behind us that they'll they'll start to walk through some trails. And, and so it's just a big team effort from the, the volunteer handlers that we currently have. Yeah, I love that, that group aspect of it. Um, so that's very, very cool. And then you said that your newest program, which is Barks Around Baltimore, yes. um, which which seems a little bit like the pack walks, but yet very different. And so the Barks Around Baltimore, is that for the adopters and their pets? No. So this is also where, this is more of where a single animal will go out. So a volunteer can come and take a, a, any one of our dogs uh, that's up for adoption and go out into the community. So the, the pack walks tend to stay around us. Sometimes they might all drive somewhere and go somewhere, but typically those are, are around us. The barks around Baltimore, they actually take the dog and they go. So they go on field trips with a single dog. Um, and at, and then those, that's where they're marketing that dog a little bit too, by wearing the adopt me vests and the backpacks. And, you know, they're more out in the community where there's a lot of other people. Our pack walks are typically, they're walking where there's not a lot of other people. I mean, you have a lot of dogs on leash and you're really working um, working that mentality and really helping the dogs. Whereas the, the barks around Baltimore is the single and uh, a single dog and they're really trying to get them exposure out of the community. Yeah. So I two, yeah. Two different programs. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I love that. Um, and I love that you do the bandanas and the backpacks, right? It's not just taking them out and having conversations with people. It really is advertising them, right? You're you're yes. trying to get them the attention, right, that, you know, to get them out of your shelter, right, to find them a forever home. So I think that's a great program that you guys do. Yeah, thank you. You know, the other thing that I always like to ask about, right, because we're all from different cities and states around the around the country is what does your community look like? Um, who are the people that you serve? What are the problems that you see? Can we spend a few minutes talking about what that looks like? And maybe what you guys are doing to, to help the community in general? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Baltimore City is is our service area. Um, there's about 650,000 residents. And in, in our city, like a lot of cities, there are um, many pockets of low-income communities, uh, many neighborhoods um, where there's many neighborhoods where there's um, not a lot of services. So not even not even services for pets, but even for people. So some of our communities don't even have a grocery store, for example. Um, so of course they're not going to then have, a, you know, a vet hospital or pet stores to get supplies, um, or even the grocery store where they have some supplies for pets. So um, without those things in their community, um, we also find that a lot of times they can't even easily get to a grocery store or to these things, um, so they don't have the transportation. So this is um, pretty prevalent in, in Baltimore City. So uh, all of our high intake areas into our shelter that where the animals mostly come from are these low-income communities. So what we do is... Um, 
we target those communities with various grants that we get. So we've gotten grants over the years where uh, we, we pick a certain zip code or a certain neighborhood and we go to that neighborhood. We'll pick, we'll do, um, we'll market to them about spay and neuter and the importance of spay and neuter. And then we'll pick up the animal for them and bring them back to the shelter and spay and neuter them at no cost. Um, we also have, um, a low cost vaccine and microchip clinic, which we do at the shelter. Um, and we also partner with another location too, where we do it there. And that is where people who can get to us, which a lot can, they just still don't, they can't afford the services in their area. Um, they'll come to us and we do low cost um, vaccinations, microchipping, um, pet licensing, things like that. Um, just the basic uh, preventative care at those clinics. And we'll have long lines um, of people waiting for that that, that um, can't get that elsewhere. And then um, over the last couple years, what we've started doing, and we really want to expand these, are community days. And community days are where we go into those lower income neighborhoods that don't have a vet. Um, and we we set up um, an event basically. Um, and that event will be where we have our, our behavior and training team there to give advice. We do a leash and collar, um, program where we give out free leashes and collars. A lot of people don't either have them or don't have the appropriate type. So, um, more, a more safe type. So we, we, we will give them them. Um, we also uh, provide spay neuter vouchers there and we work with them on getting their pet back to the shelter to spay and neuter. We do free vaccinations while we're there, free microchipping. Um, and then, we'll, you know, we have our resource team there to provide more advice or additional service needed. We also partner with um, legal aid. Um, they'll come and set up a booth. A lot of times um, people are, have, you know, folks in these communities have other issues going on too. And when you get talking to them, you find they need additional assistance besides animal welfare. So uh, we'll help them to connect to those other services. So those programs have been really successful. The community, I mean, it's such a fun day and, and the community is so appreciative and a lot, a lot of people come out uh, for those services. So we hope to continue to expand those um, as we grow. Again, I just love that it's not about the animals it's about the community as well right and you're you're really doing your research and you're learning more about the people and the surrounding areas so that you can figure out ways to to help them right i think that's yeah that's really phenomenal what you guys are what you've been able to do and what you continue to do um and it sounds like you're always looking for ways to innovate on the standard programs which i think is it's not really easy to do right there are challenges in that so yeah, I appreciate absolutely. the time, right, that it's taking to kind of reinvent some of those standard programs. So that's really awesome, Jen. Thank you. Um, we kind of talked about the community. We talked about your programs. And by the way, you have so many programs. I, you mentioned a couple of them in that last segment, but there are so many more out there on your website. So we want to encourage people to check you guys out, learn a little bit more and, you know, just see what's out there. Yeah, please. Um, our website is barks.org, B-A-R-C-S. <laughs> um, and we actually, we have a blog on our website. You know, we share a lot of stories that way. That's how people can engage with us. And then, of course, Facebook, uh, we're always putting information out on. So, you know, I would highly recommend following us on Facebook and, and keeping tabs on different things that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll link right to your website with the posting as well. So we'll make it nice and easy for everybody. So I do want to kind of talk a little bit about 
what the future looks like for you guys. Do you have any upcoming events that you want to share and, and encourage people to join? Yeah. Um, so there's there's two things on that. One, one uh, the future of Barks, of course, we're going to keep striving and growing. Um, exciting news is we are moving to a new facility, which is only two miles from where we are now. Um, and the plan move is for early 2020. So um, we're, we're thinking February of next year, we'll be in a new facility, which is very much needed and very exciting. Um, and then as far as upcoming events, um, we are are on April 27th, we have Project Runway. Um, it's a really, really fun event where we partner with uh, the Show Your Soft Side campaign, which is a campaign against animal abuse. And it's where um, local celebrities and, and actually uh, well-known folks from all over will come to Baltimore and uh, at the Royal Farms Arena, and they walk the runway with our adoptable animals. So it's an awareness event. It's a fundraising event. Um, and it's just a lot of fun to to see to see those folks. A lot of them are athletes. You know, we have a lot of NFL players, um, hockey players, lacrosse players, soccer players. Um, you name it, we've got them there. We have local DJs. Even our governor uh, walked the runway a, a couple of times, and so it, it's just such a fun event. And watching them um, handle the animals as they're <laughs> they're walking um, can be quite humorous at times. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it does raise um, a lot of money for. For the shelter and and for caring for the animals on top of it being such a, a fun event and an awareness event. Yeah, that's awesome. So early 2020, you guys are are finding a new home, huh? We are. We are. So right now, you know, we're in a 23,000 square foot building and uh, we have two trailers on, on our site because um, we've expanded so much. We have staff in closets. We have um, three or four people to even what office space office space does exist you know the animals um we could always use more room to hold more animals so this new facility is going to be thirty-seven thousand square feet and it will give us a lot more opportunity for um holding animals for our surgery area um and and also for staffing so we're, we're excited about having a um a, a much better facility than what we're in now that's so exciting jen i'm so excited for you guys thank you yeah absolutely so one of my favorite portions of this uh, is memorable stories. And so do you have one that you want to share with the listening audience? Oh, my goodness. There are millions. <laughs> I know this is always the tough one. question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I can I can pick one that um, it, it's funny because somebody just asked me a little bit about that from do I remember animals from the beginning? And I certainly do. So now I'm the executive director and, you know, a lot more is uh, of the bigger picture and, and moving the shelter forward and, and a lot more administrative and, and meeting with people and talking with people. And before I was a lot more hands on for about the first 10 years. And I loved every aspect of that as we were growing our programs. But at that point, I got to know the animals individually. And, you know, there's several that stand out, like I say, and I feel guilty only picking one, but one really um really ignited a fire in me and really wanted to change something. And that, that was right at the beginning. Um, at that time, the, uh, the, during that transition phase where we didn't really have full control over the shelter, um, it still was, you know, a lot was falling under the city at that point. Um, pit bull type dogs, any bully breed type dogs weren't allowed to um, be placed for adoption. And so that was something that, um, you know, I was really naive coming in. I, I never had a uh, perception on those type of dogs. It just wasn't something that I, I thought about or knew enough about. 
Um, and so when I heard that, I was like, that's so weird. I, you know, I don't even understand where that's coming from. But I just remember this one specific dog that, um, you know, whenever they they were getting their vaccines and everything on intake, we'd tie him to the a little loop on the wall. And um, he was just sitting there, this big um, bully type dog, just sitting there and just looking so sad. And I went over to him and I put I got down on my knees and I put my cup, my hands out in front of him for him to smell my hands. And he just laid his big fat head in my hands and his big cheeks just flowed over the side <laughs> and you know it's all just and he just rested his head he just like let it all down and I just felt the weight of what he may or may not have gone through and I it just was I mean I even get myself choked up right now because it was just such a moment for me and a, sa- a sadness and my heart went out to that dog and I thought we need to change this and we're going to change this now because I, I cannot look at this dog or any dog and say, because of what you look like, you can't go into a home. And, um, yeah. and that's where we really advocate it and push to uh, make that change. Yeah, it's a very emotional story, right? Like you said, you could almost feel the weight come off yeah. of him as he laid his head in your hands. And that's incredible, right? I always, you know, I feel like I say this every show, maybe I do, maybe I don't, I'm not sure. But it's incredible to me how quickly the animals can forget their past given their current yeah. situation. And I, I felt that with you telling that story in that no matter what he had been through, right, yeah. previous to coming to you, um, you know, they, they, just, they just have a way to kind of forget and live in the moment. They do. And that's what's so incredible about animals. I mean, we always talk about how they have unconditional love for us. They're always happy to greet us when we come home. Yeah. All of that. But they really do. They move on. I mean, we see that day in and day out with the different animals that we get in, the, the abuse cases, the um, dog fighting situations, the, um, you know, the the owner give ups that where the owner doesn't want to, you know, all those animals, um, they move on. And, and, that's our goal is to to find them the best new home and hopefully a forever home and a much better life than whatever they had before that. And they're ready when, you know, when they have that option in front of them, that's the option that they want. And we do everything we can to give it to them. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So Jen, I know we're coming up on our time here and we've talked about a, a lot. Is there anything else you want to share or maybe that we missed? Man, I think we about covered it. I, I, would, <laughs> I would just say, you know, I, I want to repeat, go back to um, this is a community effort. You know, we have an incredible staff. Um, we have an uh, incredible group of volunteers, but we still need more and more help in every area. We need the community support. So I would say if, get involved if you can. You know, of course, always donations help because that helps to grow those programs. Um, we need more volunteers. We need adopters. We need foster homes. Um, so get involved because it's it's a life-saving effort and it takes the community to make that happen. Yeah, nicely said. Well, Jen, thanks so much for joining me today, and we look forward to your progress. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. If you're not already a member, join the ARPA to take advantage of all the resources we have to offer. And don't forget to sign up with dubert.com. It's free and helps automate the most difficult tasks in animal rescue.